So last week I began a, a three-part mini-series on Christmas, but looking at it from a unique perspective, not from a manger in Bethlehem, but from an ancient tent in the Egyptian wilderness. We say, what could a tent possibly have to do with Christmas? Well, maybe more than we at first would think. Christmas is the story of God coming to dwell with his people. And that story began much further back than Mary and Joseph and the angel Gabriel meeting with them. It began even further back than the angel Gabriel meeting Zechariah and prophesying to him of what was to come. A little teaser for the rest of this message. In fact, God coming to dwell with his people is the story of scripture, and that's the way it begins. We looked at Genesis 1 last week, and we quoted Genesis 3, 8, where Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Perhaps the clearest picture of God's dwelling in relationship and intimacy in that garden space in Eden with his creation. If you know the story, and I'm guessing most of us do, something was broken. That intimacy, that communion with God was broken. Ultimately, in short, Adam and Eve chose to listen to a lie and act upon it, to follow their flesh and their perspective on what was good, thus doubting God's goodness and God's promises. And in so doing, a transaction took place, broke that relationship, broke that intimacy, and there was now separation and distance between God and his creation. Ever since that point, God has been at work pursuing his people, covenanting with them, coming to dwell amongst them, doing so, we would say, incrementally, painstakingly slow over thousands of years as God is outside of, of time and his perspective is different than ours. But God will never enforce himself upon us, but draw us, invite us, call us to him. And this is the story of God, the story we celebrate at Christmas. God's calling of his people. God's coming to dwell amongst them and invite them to know him, to walk with him, and to be with him. That's what we celebrate. John 1, 14. The apostle John recognizes this storyline arc and uses the same words to begin his gospel in the beginning, just as the whole story began. And then he says these striking words that we looked at last week in John 1, 14. The word referring to Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have now seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word from the beginning has come, the light of the world, the one and only, full of glory, grace, and truth. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come in the flesh to dwell amongst his people. He is the answer to all the questions that our hearts cry out, that really the heart cry of all peoples throughout eternity. God, are you there? God, are you near? God, do you care? God, will you show up? God, will you do anything? Certainly the cries of many in devastation around our country and even around the world in this past week and perhaps 
heart cries that you resonate with, they are not uncommon. And God answers them, has answered them in Jesus above all. These were the kinds of questions that the Jewish people cried out to God throughout their history, knowing and recognizing their own unfaithfulness, their own doubting, their own turning from God, and seeing his storyline of redemptive work again and again, but sometimes across centuries. And in Jesus' day, they were crying out, God, where are you? Will you speak again? Will you raise up your prophets again? Will you raise up and bring your Messiah in this day? Are you near? Do you care? And it's in that place that Jesus came as a baby and God answered the call. He answered those heart cries. Now, if you are a Greek-speaking Jew living in Palestine in that day, and you've only heard rumors about this Jesus and some claiming that he was the Messiah and others denying it outright, and then you heard John's words, John's gospel, whether proclaimed or read to you, and you heard this line, you would hear it with very different ears than our, than our ears hear it today. This phrase, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. It's a really strange way to say it. The, word made his, the, the phrase made his dwelling is one word in the Greek, skene, which is tent. So why would John say The word became flesh and tented, or I guess you could say um, pitched his tent amongst us. There were many other ways to convey that God had come to live with us, to be amongst us, to restore communion amongst us. All of those phrases would have been available to John to write, but he chose this word tent. The word became flesh and tented amongst us because that word skene in the Greek is the very same word that is translated again and again as tabernacle throughout the old covenant, the Hebrew scriptures. And if you were a Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, as many were, you would have heard that and immediately connected the dots and heard the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us became the tabernacle amongst us. The tabernacle no longer existed. It was the prototype of their temple, the temple that stood in Jerusalem, now built up in an ornate way by Herod. But nonetheless, the place they believed was the meeting of heaven and earth where God himself dwelt. So this wasn't just a bold statement as we might hear it, a bold statement. God has come in Jesus to dwell amongst us. This was borderline blasphemous for a Jew. God has come in this man, Jesus, and is the new tabernacle. He's the fulfillment of the entire story. He replaces and renews what is of old and is making all things new. And if that's not a true prophecy and true declaration, then it is blasphemy. Then it would counter what what and who God is. So that statement is so powerful for us, and perhaps we would even say to rightly or more deeply understand Christmas and the incarnation, the infleshing of God, as it has been said. We would do well to understand more deeply this word tabernacle and what it refers to, this ancient tent in the Egyptian Wilderness. We looked at some of its construction last week, and I don't need to repeat that. It's recorded in repetitious detail in the book of Exodus. Nearly half of that story is 
all surrounds the building, the construction, the making, and the establishing of the tabernacle and God's dwelling place amongst them. Before that temple of stone was this tabernacle of fine twined, colorful linens and ornate with a massive amount of, of gold overlaid furnishings and of silver bases for the tents and, and clips and hooks and the amazing amount of copper so that we would estimate today, because it's listed out the materials given for the tabernacle in excess of $70 million to complete this project. More probably than that God needed an ornate place to dwell than God was saying, this is the highest value and highest treasure for you. Give all to the dwelling place of God in your midst. And the God's people did respond eventually to make that happen. The concluding statement in Exodus 40, after this tabernacle was created and finished, it says, the cloud of God's presence covered the tabernacle and the glory of Yahweh filled it full. Moses could not even enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled it. So when John declares the word became flesh and dwelled and tabernacled amongst us, we are reminded of God's presence coming, of his glory in full in that place. We also saw last week that the tabernacle served like a second Garden of Eden. God was restoring his presence. And there was so much symbolism around the construction of the tabernacle to point God's people back to the garden, to their origin story of God's communion with them, of his intimacy with them. Inside that tabernacle, and be reminded, this it would be a, a much smaller space than even this room that we are gathering in. There were two, two rooms or Two places separated by a giant curtain or veil. One was smaller than the other. Inside the smaller one is called the, the, the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And that's where the, the Ark or the chest of, of the covenant, maybe the most famous piece of furniture in all of history, dwelt. You may only know it from an Indiana Jones movie. But in that place was God's word. Inside the chest was the, the Ten Commandments just representing that God has spoken, just like in the garden, God spoke. His word was there. Now we're seeing it's fulfilled in Jesus, the word. God's word, his promises are at the center of his dwelling place with his people. Upon the, the, the chest was this lid, this ornate lid with these two angels with wings outstretched over, over the, the chest called cherubs, but don't think of a a fat little chubby flying baby with a bow and arrow. These were uh, or angelic beings. And, and, and the only other time we saw them in God's story at this point was at the garden when Adam and Eve were removed from God's presence and two cherubs with raised wings and a sword guarded the tree of life because that intimacy had been broken. Here they are again representing God's presence, access to him. And, and, and now God's people are being able to be drawn back and come close again. Not fully, not completely. It's not finished. There's still separation. There's still distance, but God is making a way. In that second part of the temple, there's three other furnishings. A golden lampstand, like a menorah, which we'll look at next week. A table, 
with bread, daily bread upon it. We looked at that last week, representing God's presence with them. And today, I'll look a little more at the third piece, this altar of incense, a little smaller table whose sole purpose was for burning a fragrant aroma in God's presence. Just as the garden was a holy place where God dwelt there in purity with his people, and it was beautiful. We see the tabernacle representing that. It's pure. Its purposes are clear for God's dwelling place. It is ornate and beautiful. The table that we saw last week reminds us of God's provision in the garden. They had an abundance, whatever they needed. Every day I will provide for you, God said. And that bread that was on the table both reminded them of God's provision from ancient times and even in their recent history of the manna from heaven. Every day I will provide for you. We said how amazing that in God's presence, in that place, the way God chose to reveal himself and commune with them was not a throne that he sat upon, but a table that he drew them to. In the lampstand that we'll look at a little more next week, the one and only source of light in God's presence, reminding us that God is light and said, let there be light. And it's in the shape of an almond tree blossoming, representing life and growth, and probably reminding them of the tree of life that they'd been separated from. And now they're being drawn back to life. And the altar of incense, this third piece or third furnishing It meant that every day, morning and evening, as the priest was instructed to light the incense and let it burn, that place would be filled with a fragrant aroma, unmistakable, undeniable, just as the Garden of Eden would have been filled with a fragrant aroma, the botanical flowers and fruit seemingly always blooming, always in season. But the tabernacle was more than a reminder of what was, and more than just a God is with us now. It was a foreshadow of what was to come. It was pointing God's people to what he would ultimately do in the time they likely missed it. And maybe we have too throughout our history, but it's meant to make us look back now to Jesus, for them to look forward to what God would do to bring his presence in fullness, to dwell with them completely, not restricted in any way, not confined to a specific place or a tent or a temple, but actually to come to dwell within a person in humanity and to walk amongst them. And now as the Holy Spirit has come, the divine spirit has come. Amazingly, it said that we become the temple, the tabernacle of God through his spirit dwelling in us. Just as Jesus, when he died upon the cross, that curtain, that veil inside that tabernacle was torn from top to bottom. It said as if two hands were reaching out of heaven and rent it apart. Not just so that access is now possible for all of us to come into the presence of God, which is symbolic, but more so that God has now come out. God has come out to dwell amongst us in his world. Jesus solidified it through what he had done upon the cross. He's the fulfillment of the entire story. He's the fulfillment of God's deliverance story for his people, the most important story that they shared. He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle, as John rightly declares. He has come to be the tabernacle amongst us. The author of Hebrews called the tabernacle a copy or a shadow of what was in heaven, a reflection and a foreshadow that Jesus has come to fulfill. We looked at that a little bit last week. All of the authors of the New Testament 
started to recognize this as they wrote, that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the entire story. It was Jesus who taught them to look this way. We read Luke 24, 27 last week. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to his disciples what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. I would have loved to have been part of that Bible study. Let's go through the scriptures and I will show you where I am amongst you. Jesus does not abolish the law or the prophets or the story. He has come to enrich it, to fulfill it, to clarify it, to make it new in himself. All the authors of the New Testament or New Covenant clearly found him in this Exodus story. They reminded them of God's deliverance from oppression, of his faithfulness, of his dwelling with them, of his mercy, of his forgiveness, things that they needed to cling to, that we too need to cling to and be reminded of, which has been accomplished in Jesus. Jesus is also the high priest again and again. He's declared that and taught that, and that makes that's a lot more powerful for us when we understand their ritualistic worship and how the separations existed from God's people who could only come into the courtyard of the tabernacle. They could not even enter inside the tent. Only the priests could go in as an extension of the people to mediate between God and humanity, to represent them, to seek forgiveness and mercy on behalf of the people. And then only the high priest could go into that most inner space, one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and make atonement even for the priests, for himself and for the people through the blood of the sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest, our highest priest, the once and for all, who comes in to humanity as a mediator between God and us to show us God. We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the high priest, and even the sacrifice the blood cleansing and consecrating us. And we see him imaged in every aspect of the furnishings, representing God in a unique way. And so we see him in the altar of incense. Maybe you've never considered this before, but it's deeply connected even to the Christmas story. Do you remember? We'll get there. This little altar, this little table Three feet high, 18 inches by 18 inches square, overlaid with gold, had one purpose, to hold that incense and let it burn as the priest would light it morning and evening. One sole pure purpose, to bring a fragrant aroma into the place, to fill that tabernacle with a fragrant smoke. If you've ever lit incense or even lit a, a, a wick of a candle that burns and emits that smoke in a very calm room, have you ever watched that smoke swirl and curl almost in a mysterious kind of way? It's almost mesmerizing. Smoke often represented the presence of God throughout his story. Smoke and cloud and vapor and fire because God is spirit. And as God came to make himself known and seen and reveal himself, it was often in that kind of way. And so that smoke that rose and that filled the space reminded them that God is near. His presence is here. The fragrant aroma, you could almost breathe it in. You would know it. In Exodus 30, we're given an actual recipe for that incense and a prohibition that 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 recipe of incense could be burned at any other place. Because everything about God's presence was holy, 
set apart, unique, could not be replicated, could not be duplicated. And everything they did was meticulous to that end. If you ever have, do you ever have nostalgic smells? Maybe it's a place. For me, it's, my, it's, our, it's our cabin. It's our family cabin. And it just has a unique aroma and smell. It takes me back to so many memories. It's amazing how smells can do that for us. It would have been like that for God's people as they drew near to his presence and smelled this incense that was only made and burned in that one place. It would bring them back a flood of memories or emotions of who God was and what he had done, of communion, of growing up, especially for the priests who got to be the ones closest into that presence and to light that incense every day. So we see Jesus in this altar, in this one and only, in this purity, in this fragrant aroma, in the the smoke representing God's presence. The apostle Paul picks up on this concept in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. The sacrifices of the animals and that burnt aroma was often called a fragrant and pleasing aroma. And here we have Jesus also represented in the incense, a fragrant aroma. So Paul makes an application for us to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself. How do we represent God in this world? By giving of ourselves, by pouring out of ourselves, by being a light into the world, by being refined, by being a fragrant and pleasing sign unto God that he would be known and experienced. Many have also seen in this rising smoke, morning and evening throughout the day, a metaphor for our prayers and the prayers of the priests who came to intercede on behalf of God's people. Not that God is up and that we are down. God is all amongst us. But we often use that imagery, grasping for something of reality of God, where are you? I'm raising up my voice. I'm raising up my prayers unto you. I believe you hear them and receive them. And that was the work of the priest to intercede, to mediate. And so we can also see our prayers rise up to God as a fragrant aroma. Any of our communion with him, he is pleased with, he receives, he takes it all. Because as a father who desires to hear from his children, especially the wayward ones, the ones that have left him. Some of you have walked through this, whether you to a parent or you as a parent have walked through broken or hard things with your children. And all you long for is for them to draw back them to communicate with you, to speak to you, anything. You'll take anything, all of their emotion, all of their hurt, all of their pain. Because you long for that relationship and God is a perfect father where we fall short. The author of Hebrews, again, back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, sees Jesus as the fulfillment of this priest and this mediator, his prayers interceding for us because Jesus lives forever. He He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
It was not once and only. He is there now as our priest interceding between us and the holy God. He always lives to intercede. He will save completely those who come to God through him. May we draw near in that way today. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. We have this high priest who once and for all offered himself to make access to God and communion with God possible again. All we need to do is to draw near to God through Jesus, to look to him and respond to him in faith, in hope, not without doubt, but striving, God, I believe. I believe today. Help me with my unbelief. That famous, powerful prayer of the desperate father in Mark 9. We believe today. We strive for joy today. We still lament and cry out to you. We long for you. We believe, God, help us in our unbelief. We look to your story of your pursuit and your love, of your coming to this world to humble yourself in the way that you did, to walk through life, to live as a mediator on our behalf, to show us the kingdom and show us what it means to find true life in it. We walk with you. We receive you. These are our prayers rising up as an aroma to God today. He will take all of your prayers and all of you today as a father who is calling back his children. Respond to him today. Draw near to him in your praises, your thanksgiving. Amazingly then, as we then receive and we are humbled by what we have been called to, that we can know and hear this message, this story proclaim and receive it. We are then called priests. Did you know that? You are a priest as a follower of God. He intends you to make him known, to mediate him to this world, to reconcile, to be ambassadors, to represent him. The apostle Peter, as a chief representative, who, by the way, had his own struggles and stumbles with faith and doubt, and Jesus redeemed him, if we can relate to that story. He calls the church, God's people, a chosen people, 1 Peter 2, 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Where God was showing the world what he was doing amongst a people, setting them apart, showing what it would look like to dwell amongst them, to raise them up, to set aside some as priests to represent all of the people. In Jesus, that has been torn, that has been rendered down. His temple, his tabernacle is now the world. And all of his followers with no distinction are called a royal priesthood in that lineage because of what he has done, not because of us. We get to represent him, to mediate him. What would that mean? Consider in the small way the work of the priests to create that incense. There was ritual to it. There was a recipe they followed down to the, 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 the smallest pinch of spice, of sweet spices, of frankincense, of myrrh, and they mixed it together. They ground it up. They created a, a patty of some kind that was solid to burn slowly and raise up that aroma. 
As they ritualistically prepared that, it was an act of worship. It could be an act of worship. Perhaps it became just a a religious routine. We can do that with anything, right? Based on the attitude of our hearts. As you make your preparations, we considered this last week of in the preparation of the bread and all of the preparations we might make in, in meals to give and to serve or, or treats to bring and deliver to friends or in hospitality as we bring people to our table. As you go through preparations this holiday season that might be somewhat ritualistic or even mundane and maybe you're even scrambling one after another because your schedules are so full, could we pause and redeem and reflect that we too are priests and we too can in our act of service and even our preparation redeem them as holy through attention and affection recognizing that in some small way as a gift we bring we bless and we receive and we give and even if only one sees God our father sees the attitude of our heart given in generosity to represent him, to steward his presence wherever we go in this season. In the smallest kinds of ways, we can make powerful impact as God works in his spirit to redeem and to translate that gift. To conclude today, let's connect this altar of incense story even more specifically to the Christmas story as I've been hinting on. This should be familiar for some of us. It's the way the gospel writer Luke began his story of Jesus coming to earth. He goes back a little further in the story and fills out some details that the other writers don't. In Luke chapter 1, 5 and following, a little bit of an extended section focused on this man, Zechariah, who would be the father of John the Baptist. It was the time of King Herod of Judea, and there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. That was the priestly lineage. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he he was serving as priest before God at the temple, and he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, perhaps it was morning, perhaps it was evening, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, and the one priest went inside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. It seems in that moment, he was just going through this religious exercise, following his duty. Maybe he had never done it before. Maybe he had done it and been drawn before, but it was a very high honor. It seems that he wasn't actually praying in that moment. Perhaps he wanted to get the lighting of the incense just right and do his duty. He should have had uh, prayers that he was reciting on on behalf of God's people, as was their custom. So when Zechariah shows up and says, I've heard your prayer, your prayer is answered. That's not what he was praying in that moment. But the angel of the Lord, representing God's presence, came to him there and foretold of the coming son, a miraculous son that would be born, 
This was the first miraculous birth in the gospel story of John the Baptist who would precede Jesus and declare him the Lord coming, make straight the ways for the Lord, but a voice crying in the wilderness. The second miraculous birth would come a few months later, announced by the same Gabriel to Mary and to Joseph. And that's who we celebrate on Christmas. It's clear that Zechariah was not expecting to meet or hear from an angel of God. He was startled and gripped with fear. A reminder to us that God may choose to meet us and answer our long-standing prayers when we least expect it. He is not unaware. In all of the ways and the places that God could have chosen to meet Zechariah and answer that prayer, he chose this moment, the temple, specifically the altar of incense, a fragrant, pleasing aroma with smoke rising, representing the prayers of Zechariah and the prayers of his people. That was not coincidental. As we raise up our praises today, may we see them as prayers rising that God receives and hears and responds to. May we be encouraged that God is near and meets us as we then move from this place into the days ahead. May we pray to be more conscious and aware of his nearness and his closeness because of what he has done and because of who Jesus is. That he may meet with us and answer our prayers in ways that we're not expecting. God, grow us Grow in us an anticipation and an expectation of your work in this season. I invite you, likely in the busyness of this season, to find times to pause and to reflect. I hope you can carve those out. Maybe it has to be early in the morning to see that happen. But as you get to carve out those spaces, if this is not a regular practice, maybe light a candle, reminding us of the light or the candles of Advent, perhaps even light incense, and be reminded that your prayers do reach God's ears. Maybe you sit in silence and receive. Make a practice, make a renewed practice and discipline this season to receive and celebrate the Christmas season and all that it means that Jesus has come to dwell amongst us, that he is near and we receive him. As you respond today, As you are reminded of what God has done, your response is prayers in faith through song, perhaps your own prayers. As you receive communion, a response to draw near to the presence of God and receive what he has done for us. Be blessed, be encouraged, be reminded, and be hopeful of what he is yet to do. God, help us know you are near. We want to experience you as a fragrant and pleasing aroma. We want to enjoy you, to breathe you in. We offer our prayer and raise them up to you. Would you also make us become a pleasing, fragrant offering unto others? May they come to know and experience you through us. You are the one and only, full of grace and glory, representing us on behalf of God.
mediate between us as our high priest. Grow our faith as we pray and seek you. May you draw near to us as we draw near to you. We claim this promise, God. And may we know you more in our midst today and in the days to come. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.